Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. Today's message, if you're taking notes, it's titled, Would... We, we're going to start where we ended off last Sunday. Would you yell with me? Would you yell with me? I gave this analogy of, a, of an arena or in a stadium or whatnot. And there's something beautiful in a corporate yell. And there's something beautiful in a, in a corporate, in, a, in just in a corporate declaration, um, in, in, a, in a corporate declaration of unity together. And... But I, I, I truly believe this, and I want to make sure I'm clear on this, and I will be as we get through the message. Um, I believe that um, whatever we declare outwardly, please listen to this, whatever we declare outwardly, it only has authority or power if we're first living it inwardly. Um, I don't think that our voice has any form of weight if our life has no form of obedience. You with me? I believe obedience is key to everything we do. I want to talk about that today because the question of would you yell with me, it's actually a question for ourselves to look at the mirror, to evaluate ourselves and say, wait a minute, am I allowed to yell? Am I allowed to make my voice heard because of a life of obedience? So hopefully you'll get that throughout this message. Amen. Hopefully you get challenged today. The word of God always challenges us and grows us. Would you yell with me? In Matthew chapter 17, if you're taking notes, in Matthew 17, you could write that down. And I'm just going to quote verse 21. I'll give you a little summary. But it's a very interesting situation. Jesus is walking through a town. And a father whose son suffers from epilepsy comes up to Jesus. He's demon-possessed and he suffers from epilepsy. And the father is struggling because for his whole life, the father has been trying to figure out how do I heal my son. You know, as a father, he was tired of seeing his son throw himself in the fire and throw himself in the water. That you had to jump in there and save him from the water and jump in there so he doesn't get burned and save him from the fire. Imagine being a father, a mother, and your son is constantly, when there's a fire present or there's a water present, is throwing themselves in this danger. And you have to constantly be aware of your child so that they don't drown or they don't get burned. So he's just distraught for his whole life dealing with this with his child. So what happens is he, he sees the disciples and he brings his son to the disciples and he tells the disciples what's going on. The disciples pray over him and they probably yell and they probably shout and they probably do all the things that they probably do and shake their heads and they, they crunk up their voice. In the name of Jesus, I tell that demon to come out now and nothing happened. Didn't matter how they, how, how, it didn't matter how into their prayer they got. It didn't matter how loud they got. It didn't matter what, what they did and how much oil they poured on him. They could not free the kid from his epilepsy and from whatever demon was harassing him. You with me? So they bring the son to Jesus, and Jesus is there now. And as he hears that Jesus is walking by, he's like, this is what's going on with my son. He tells them the whole story. And Jesus just looks at the son instantly, bam, bam, boom. The son gets healed from epilepsy, gets freed from the demonic oppression, possession, whatever is occurring there. And the disciples now are watching this and they're in awe and they're like, what is going on? How come we couldn't do this? And they come up to Jesus and they ask him the question, how come we couldn't cast out what you were able to do with this young man? How come we weren't able to do it? And in verse 21, Jesus says something like this. Now, some translations um, have, have, have taken this verse out and some have added it, like the New King James, because they eventually get it from Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is the story that is being replicated and they add fasting in here, so yet there is still a similar story. It's not like we're adding and taking away from the word of God. So before, you got to understand that. So there is a, very, there's a related text there uh, as we see that it's a familiar story in Mark 9. But in verse 21, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, however, this kind does not go out except through prayer and fasting. In Mark 9, Jesus says, however, this does not happen unless through prayer. 
Now, this is very powerful for the single, single fact that Jesus was like, I know I heard you guys from the corner. You were yelling and you were screaming and you were throwing oil on him and you did all these things. You shook him up a little bit, but nothing happened. Sometimes it just happens from the obedience of learning how to pray and live in prayer. And he even adds fasting in here. So, so it's, almost, it's almost like when Jesus tells the disciples this, they had to kind of evaluate themselves and say, okay, where's our prayer game at? Where's, have we fasted lately? Uh, there's another passage in Acts 19, which, um, which is, it might be similar to, uh, familiar to you guys. In Acts 19, there are some traveling Jews, and these traveling Jews are marveling. I mean, they are marveling over Paul's ministry. I mean, I would too if they're taking off Paul's clothes and they're throwing it on the sick and on the demon-possessed, and they're getting set free. I mean... So, so they're marveling at Paul and what Paul is doing. Verse 11 in, in Acts 19, it says, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Well, what did he do? Verse 12, that even the handkerchiefs and the aprons were brought from Paul's body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So they took it now upon themselves, these traveling Jews, these sons of Sceva, they took it upon themselves like, oh, let's do what Paul does. Maybe we can make some money off this. <laughs> if, we, if we could cast out some demons like he does, we could just go town to town and make some money. Did you hear how he said it? He said in the name of Jesus and stuff like that. So we'll just use the same words. We'll just copy the same stuff, you know. And we, and we think just because something's working for someone that we have the authority to copy what's working for someone else and automatically just plug it into our life and think that God's going to honor that without God actually doing the work because of a life that is walking out through obedience. So what do these guys do? Like, oh, let's do what Paul does. So they go and um, watch verse 15. As they, as they begin to cast out this demon, verse 15 says, the evil spirit answered and said... <laughs> And you've heard this here, right? Jesus I know and Paul I know. But I think this is the scariest question of all questions. But who are you? Who are you? I know the guy you just prayed with me in Jesus. Very terrified of him. And I know his ambassador, Paul. Yeah, his apostle, very terrified of him. He walks with such an authority. And um, yeah, I'm scared of him. But who are you? It's almost as if the demons are saying, you have no authority to pray me out. I'm going to show you what kind of authority. This is crazy because... That they, they thought they had authority to pray them out, but the demons are going to say, no, we're going to have the authority to beat you down. <laughs> so in verse 16, it says, Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on the sons of Sceva, on the traveling Jews, overpowered them, prevailed against them, and they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They beat them so bad that their clothes even came off. That's a beat down. You, you've been to a fight, right, and the shirts get ripped? And half the clothes are missing and there's blood and half the shirts. Are, I mean, these guys got so beat down that not even the underwear stayed on. I mean, they were running wounded and naked. They had no authority to function in, in, in such a manner. Because their lives did not exemplify a life of obedience. I know Paul. I know Jesus. But who are you to yell at me? Would you yell with me? Some of us, it would be good to say, I'm not even going to try to yell. And that's okay. I will honor that and respect that. Don't speak. If Okay, we'll get it. See, here it is. There is, no operating, there is no operating in authority if there is no honor in obedience. There is no operating in authority if there is no honor in obedience. No, for sure. You know, my children can't grow up and, and just be disobedient for their whole lives. And... Um, one day just walk in and say, you know what, Dad? I'm 18 years old, and um, I think it's time that I get my car. And I'm like, well, you know what, son? <laughs> I think you need to sit down because um, you don't have authority to come into my house and tell me what I need to give you if you have not lived before me a life of obedience, deserving of giving you what you, what, you, what you want and what you're asking for. I mean, as a father, I think I would do that. I hope I would. I mean, hold me accountable when my children get older. Hopefully I would, and hopefully they don't give me that problem. But, but there is no operating in authority if there's no honor and obedience. In some cases, we need to learn that to walk in a specific order of obedience in order to operate in this proper authority that we see in Scripture. 
Jesus is a great example, and we'll get to them. And, and we're reminded today that the Lord requires obedience from us. If you're taking notes, you should write that. Jesus requires obedience from me. Obedience, I believe, it's one of the greatest things that we could offer unto the Lord. What should I offer to the Lord? Like, what should I give him? I've tr- Give him your obedience. That's it? Yeah, just give it to him. All of your obedience unto him. The greatest thing that I could honor the Lord with is a life of obedience. How many of you remember, and we, we preached here, I think it was a few months ago, when, when, when Samuel the prophet went up to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and he, and he said that the Lord would have been greatly pleased with his obedience, rather with his offerings and with his sacrifices. He tells, he tells the king that. Wait a minute, you think that what you did honored God? No, God is more honored with your life of obedience. You can't go and sacrifice all those animals and think that God is going to receive that fragrance when your life has been disobedient. Be disobedient first and from there bring forth the proper offering. It comes from the place of obedience. See, moving God's heart is not through the offering and through the sacrifices we may offer him. I'm going to even challenge you. It wasn't even through the worship service that you just had. Your worship service that you just had is effective if, if the worship service that you're having outside of these four walls is, is really amusing God. Don't think that you could come over here and amuse God for 30 minutes when Monday through Saturday you have one foot in the world and you forgot totally about God. Listen, that worship over there will bring forth a greater declaration of worship in here when we lift up the obedience of worship unto God. Can't just like, oh, this is the time where I raise my hands. Where were you Tuesday night? Well. I wasn't really worshiping the Lord there. I know you weren't. That's what I'm trying to, that's what we're getting at. And, and, and moving God's heart, it's not through offerings and sacrifices that we may offer him, but in the obedience in which all things are done through. Amen. Why is obedience so important? You should write this down. Obedience is important because of which it's defined. It's defined one way like this. It is submission to another's authority. Obedience is submiss- being submissive to another's authority. Are you with me? Submissive to another's authority. Say it with me. Submissive to another's One more time. That's obedience. So, so check this out. If we say we are submitted under the authority of Jesus Christ, yeah? It's not through fear. I'm submitted to Jesus. My obedience is to Christ. It's not through fear. It's not through terror, and it's not through force. But our submission under his authority was one, W-O-N, was one, we talked about winning, was one in his love manifested in laying down his life for us. Maybe I'll say it again. We, when we are submitted under the authority of Jesus Christ, it's not through fear, terror, or through force, but our submission under his authority is one, W-O-N, in his love, manifested in laying down his life for us. Romans 5.8 says that God proves his love for us. In this, that while we were still sinners, Christ what? Christ died for us. So, in, in, in one If one does not love, if one does not love the one in which they have submitted themselves under, it's only a matter of time that they relocate themselves or or away from, oh yeah, let's say it this way, that they would just automatically relocate and move themselves away from such an authority. I'll say it again. If one does not love the one in which they have submitted themselves under, it's only a matter of time until they relocate themselves under such an authority because Being under an authority without being rooted in love, the blessing that comes from living under such a person's authority now becomes a burden. You come under someone's authority that is telling you to live holy, but everything about you does not want to live holy. Then the preaching of holiness begins to irritate you because the last thing you want to do is live in godliness and holiness. But under such an authority, he preaches holiness, love, and godliness. You got me? So, so what I, that, that's the point that I'm trying to make. If one does not love the one in which they have submitted themselves under, it's only a matter of time until they relocate themselves from such an authority. Because being under an authority while being or without being rooted in love, the blessing that comes from that now becomes a burden. It becomes a burden. I don't know if I could just walk with this walk anymore. I don't know if I could continue to go to church. I don't know if this Christ, I don't know if it's for me. So, 
Could it be this? Could it be so many people live in Christianity, live Christianity as a burden? Because they are forcing themselves to live under God's authority while absent of being rooted in true love for him. The person that says, oh, being a Christian, it's just, oh, I have to follow. No, they missed what, Christian, what walking in God is. I can't do this. I, I got, they, they, you, you've lost. That's not what this walk is about. So could it be that those who live Christianity and have a burden, it's because they're forcing themselves under this authority. And being forced under such authority, while being absent of being rooted in love, it becomes a burden, which should be a blessing. So the blessing that comes from living under an authority, like I just said, now becomes the burden that isolates us and relocates us to submit to a whole other authority. In which will better please me. Rather than being and living submitted, rooted in love to better please him. How many of you know that your walk with the Lord is not necessarily for him to better please you, but your walk in the Lord should deepen so that how much more can you please him with your life? It should get to that point of your life where it's like, okay, God, I also need this. It should also be like, God, also receive this. We need to understand that because if your Christianity is based always on what can I get from it, what can I receive? And now what more can Christ get from me? What has happened here, and probably even without our knowledge, is that we made ourselves God. You're asking God to be obedient to you. Remember, obedient. <clears throat> what can I get from it? What can I receive from this? Rather than you being obedient to God, submissive under his authority, what more can God get from me? What can I offer unto him? Two different ways of describing this. Hope you're understanding this stuff, man. You're asking God, Lord, be obedient to me by saying, what can I get from you? Rather than you just being obedient to God saying, Lord, here, have all of me. And here is where the irritation begins for many people. Irritation begins. This is the place where he calls us into holiness and into godliness, where, which is to be set apart. Because where, where our greatest act of obedience, our greatest act of obedience may just be to be the holiness of God here on earth. To be set apart in his godliness. So I ask you these questions like, hmm, would you yell with me? Would you yell with me? Think about what that question is really doing in your heart. What he's really doing in your soul. Would you yell with me? Because the truth is, there is no power in our words if there is no demonstration in obedience in our lives. We've all been around the person that professes they're a Christian, but their life does not show that they follow God's way. It's okay. We've all been there. The point is, don't stay there. The point is saying, I got to come to grips with this. Is my life going to start living in obedience to him? I could, because I could preach a word, but what authority will it have if the life is not lived? I could sing a song, but what authority will it have if the life is not lived? I could speak in the corner of the street, but what authority will it have if the life is not lived? So would you yell with me is the question because there is no power in my words if there is no demonstration in obedience. So we can pray and we can fast and we can scream for the walls to come down like the walls of Jericho, which we will end with hopefully. But the truth is, here's the question. Are you submissive to his authority? You could pray and fast and do everything, but are you submissive to his authority? You can't have a position of honor. Until your life demonstrates submission to authority. There's no way I could have any kind of honor in the things of God if my life is not submitted to his authority. Because if you're honored without first learning to honor, you become a ticking time bomb. You become a problem. You become a great talent. You become a great voice. You become a great whatever. But, but, but will eventually fall off because there's not a life of obedience. A position of honor without submitting to authority, I cannot be honored without first learning to honor. Amen? You understand that? You can't be honored unless you first learn how to live honoring. Uh, maybe, maybe I should add some biblical context to put this stuff into picture here. Mark chapter 10 is a good place to sit on for a little while. Mark 10, there's two brothers that come up to Jesus. 
They're called James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're also called the sons of thunder. You tell me if they don't make some noise. When you're called the sons of thunder, you're just rumbling around. You're just, you know, it's a good nickname to have. It sounds like a WWE tag team. I mean, and um, the sons of thunder. I mean, I'd rather be called the sons of thunder than lightning. Though thunder is like all bark, lightning's maybe more shoulder. I don't know. We have to kind of dissect that, see what, what we get out of that. But whatever. Sons of thunder is a cool name. And the sons of thunders come up to Jesus, and maybe you know this story. And um, they ask Jesus a very serious and bold question. And, and they say this to him in verse 37. He says, grant us that we may sit one at your right hand and the other one at your left. How many of you have read this story? We've preached it here a couple of times, but... Let us sit in, in the places of honor. You guys are seeing that, right? Let us sit in places of honor. How many of you know that Jesus sits in honor? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that for, in a moment, so I don't want to get too carried away, but he sits in honor. So to sit at his right and his left, you're asking to sit in a place of honor. So he, they're asking to be honored. They, they wanted this. And, I, and I'm going to be very honest with you because it's so easy to look at this. They, pff, they need to humble themselves. No, I think they're right. I don't see nothing wrong with what they're desiring. At least they're desiring something, something good. Jesus sees it the same way because he doesn't necessarily rebuke them. He just realigns their way of thinking. So, so they want a place of honor to be honored, not necessarily bad. I want to make sure I make that clear. But instead, what Jesus does here, he says, you know what? This is going to be a great teachable lesson. And he unleashes a great principle because of this question. Let's jump to 42 and 43 so we could get right into it. Jesus calls all his disciples to himself right after this question is asked. And look what he says to them. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But look what he says in verse 43 and pause after the first, the first statement of 43. It says, yet it shall not be so among you. So what is Jesus doing? He's giving them an example and then he's saying, according to the example I just gave you, you should not live like that. Everyone with me? Here's the example. Don't be like that. What is Jesus telling his followers? What is Jesus telling his students? What is he saying to his disciples? He's basically giving them an example of these people who sit in honor in the government that they live in right now and even in the spiritual government. And what Jesus is telling them is, look how they lord. Look how they govern. It never works out like that. It never works out for the good. What is he telling them? They exercise authority. And what he's trying to teach them is they force their authority, which in return, which in return forces, forces the others, their, the, the, those who are under that authority, it forces their submission to them. And as long as authority is being forced and submission is being forced under that authority, none of it is true. None of it will last. All of it is built on sinking sand. The authority isn't true and neither is the submission. It's all done out of fear. It's all done out of terror. It's all done out of force. And anything done out of force and terror and fear, it won't last. It shall not be so among you. So he's teaching them something special here about leadership, about honor, about being great. So he says in verse 43, it shall not be so among you. And then he breaks down, this is how it should be. He says, whoever desires to become great then shall be a what? Shall be your servant. Think about hearing that mystery during this day. In this day, the way to greatness is be a slave. That's very offensive to certain people to be called a slave. Very offensive. I'm, I'm, I'm making sure I, I understand that. Very offensive. But the kingdom operates in a way that in our world, in the definition of our world, we, we, we just can't put mind to it. You want to be great, be a servant, be a slave. And he says, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. (laughs) Put everyone before you. For even I, the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I hope you get the concept of what he's teaching here. Your place of honor, you should write this in your notes. Your place of honor should be the place where you are a servant and where you are a slave. It's not what can I get from you, it's what can others receive from me. I wish there would be at least two amens, but it's okay. It's time change Sunday and 
you had an extra hour of sleep, you should be a little bit more energized, but maybe it's my congestion that I'm not seeing and hearing and smelling clearly. But the place of honor is living a life of not what can I get from this. The place of honor is living what can others get from me. How can others receive from me? Come on, if you're really um, open with yourself, you'll notice deep down inside a lot of you lives for yourself. It's very scary to say that sometimes because I don't you know, want anyone to be mad at me necessarily. We live for ourselves. We live for what's better for us. But the true place of honor is how can my life be lived for someone else? I mean, doesn't Jesus give us a great definition of the greatest love possibly seen by man is what? The greatest love is this, to be what? Is to lay what? That's living your life for another, lay down your life for another. That's crazy. So if you can't submit under another's authority, what makes you think that you will honor when authority is given to you? That, that's powerful. Because if I'm given authority without learning how to submit under authority, I'm a dangerous man. Just give me some time. Give me some time. I have people that I, I, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm under his authority, but I also have physical authority over my life in the spiritual um, ways. And, and, and um, I have pastors and I have overseers and our church has pastors away from me that, pastor me and look into my life and and sometimes you know I look at things and I might not necessarily agree with everything but when they speak to my life I recognize like man there's an authority there that I, I, I must I must guard my heart and I must open myself to say I need to fall under this to honor the Lord in and think about what that looks like in my relationship to the Lord as I read his scripture as I pray and seek his will as I as I as I start to dig into the text of the word of God and what he's pouring into me and what he's speaking into me. And then I understand, wait a minute, if I'm under God's authority, if he wants to give me any kind of authority here on earth and even in the spiritual, when, when I go into eternity with him, because many will be placed in positions of authority, how will I be able to handle that if I even here on earth can't live under his authority? He says, he says, I'm the prime example. He tells his disciples. Think about what he tells his disciples. I came to serve. What is he coming to serve if you automatically think he came to serve the disciples before anything else no he came to serve the father's will he himself being God came to serve the father's will we see that in the garden of Gethsemane Lord if it's possible pass this cup from me but nevertheless let your will be done and not my will what is he doing he's showing what submission under God the father's authority Christ was a prime example that what? I came to serve and the primary thing that I came to serve is my Father's will because, listen, I know what it is. I know what it is to be submissive to the Father's authority. He causes my name to be above every name and he causes my throne to be above every throne. How do you think Jesus gets the name above every name and the throne above every throne? His life was lived out under the Father's authority. There's something beautiful to be seen in living under authority. I can't say, oh, man, today I decide not to live under this authority, but tomorrow. No. Does all of your life live in obedience to his authority, submissive under him? So that what? So that in there you take on his image. In there you replicate him on earth. You are his image here on earth. He's giving us himself as a prime example. Because of my obedience all authority of the Father has been given to me. If you remember the Great Commission, he even repeats that. All authority is given to me. Now you do this. It's, 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 I have authority. Why does Jesus say I have authority? Because I've been submitted on earth here. And you see me. I've been submitted to his authority. I've been submitted to his authority. My words are true because my life is true. Are you obedient? Are you submissive to his authority? Can you tell someone, yell with me, would you? And yet, when you ask that question, like seriously, what does your life look like? Do you have the authority to grab someone and ask them to speak and to do something? And, and, and for the kingdom of God, when our lives are not even being obedient itself for him. So many passages in scriptures. 
Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus comes and he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Think about that. In every dimension possible, authorities have been given to me. In the dimension that you know, in the dimension maybe that you have not even seen yet. There's authority that has been given to me. But what I love about this passage is verse 19 in Matthew 28. He doesn't just say all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Now bow down and worship me. He actually does something very beautiful because he's Jesus. Look how he does this. He says, all authority has been given to me on, at, and, um, in heaven and on earth. But look at verse 19. Now go therefore. That's special that Jesus does this. Because we've learned this, that if we are in Christ, we're co-seated with Christ. That's exactly what James and John were asking. Can we sit in your right and can we sit in your left? What they were asking before the teaching ever came out was, can we be co-seated in glory with you? Can we sit in glorious places with you? And if we could quote books like Ephesians and verses that we are in Christ and we are co-seated with Christ and we reign with Christ, then we must come to grips with, I also share with and in his authority. If I reign in and with Christ, I also reign in and with his authority. I wonder if we believe that for ourselves. Why do I know that? And Jesus spoke to him. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go therefore. They're going to now operate in the authority of Jesus Christ. They're not going to go over there and baptize people in their name and in the name of their ministry and in the name of their beliefs. They're going to baptize people what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and command them and teach them everything that I've ever taught you. What are they doing? They're operating in the authority of Christ that has been given to them by the Father. All the authority in heaven and on earth. Now you two have it in me. Go therefore. So we have authority. But what is the disciples and the apostles? What is their call for the rest of their lives? Live submitted in, my, in obedience unto, under my authority and you will operate in such authority. So Paul is doing what? Handkerchiefs are coming off his body. Robes are coming off his body. Snakes are being shaken off from his wrist. And Paul, Paul is shaking death off his, off his body. And then his own clothes is shaking deaths off other people's bodies. How is Paul functioning and operating in such authority? Because if you study the life of Paul, Paul with his many flaws and his many problems, he lived constantly in obedience and in submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. What does he say? I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I have no words of flattery words or words that I'm going to awe you with, but simple words. So, I mean, Paul never puffed himself up, though he had an amazing resume. And he said, I was taught from the strictest law. I am a Pharisee among Pharisees. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. But yet he humbles himself and he says, but everything that I speak, I speak it simple to you, not using words that will go over your head. And he says, Christ and Christ crucified. He is living and operating under an authority. So he operates in such an authority. Paul yells and demons say, I know him. Others start yelling and they say, Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. But I don't know you. Like, there is an operating and it starts with obedience. Obedience. Authority is never absent of obedience. The good, the, a good example is the rich young ruler. We're familiar with that story. In Luke 18, he comes up to Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what, what do I got to do? I, 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 want, I want this good stuff for me. It's a great discussion. If you have a chance, read it this week. It's in Luke 18, an amazing encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler. But towards the end of the conversation, Jesus says to him, I'm just going to read verse 22 and 23. They go over a lot of stuff. And the, the rich young ruler is like, I did that. I've done that. I've done this. I've done that. And I don't want to get too into that right now. But look at 22 and 23. Jesus looks at him and he says, you still lack one thing. He says, sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor. Distribute it. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. When you're done with all this, then come and follow me. But when the rich young ruler heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. I mean, when I read this, it's almost like 23 and 22 are contradicting each other. Jesus says, you lack one thing, so everything you have, and then you're going to have riches in heaven. So everything you have, and then you're going to be rich in heaven. The next verse says, he had so much riches that he left away sorrowful. See, I want us to know right now that that his riches were not the problem. His riches were not the problem. 
And Jesus didn't necessarily desire for him to be poor. The problem with this young man right here was that he chose to walk in disobedience rather than in obedience. And this is what I'm starting to believe. He wanted to receive a blessing from a place of disobedience. When you could only receive the blessing from a place of obedience. A place that is submissive under Christ's authority. So, so maybe if I say it this way, you'll understand it better. See, Jesus' agenda was, was not to make the rich man poor. Are you with me? It was not to make the rich man poor. Jesus' agenda was to make known to the rich man that he was poor. That was the whole agenda with this discussion. It's not, I, I want you to sow all your stuff because I, I want you to be like lowly and, and poor and I want you to learn how to really suffer. I don't think that's, if he's a, fa a good father, I don't think he really wants that. I think what the good father was recognizing there was, you come to me with all these riches, but if you only knew how poor you really were. And what he was trying to do to this rich young ruler was show him his poverty to make him rich. And that's what I believe his agenda was in this dialogue. You want to know what rich is. You want to be rich. Then honor me with obedience. Be submissive to my authority. So reality is he wanted to make this poor man rich. Verse 23, one more time. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. It probably would have read better if it said, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very poor. But you see, it couldn't say that because most readers wouldn't understand that. So when G, we go back to verse 22, he says, you lack one thing. So everything you have, and you're going to have treasures in heaven. So everything you have, and then you're going to know what rich really is. And the man says, I'm not, get, what, what is he saying? I'm not, I'm not what? I'm not submitting anything to what you're just saying. And he walks away sorrowful, for he felt he was very rich. If he would have been obedient and submitted under his authority, he would have taken everything Christ told him to do and do it to the T. And then he would have recognized that on the other side of living in that obedience, there was, many, there was much more riches to follow. Like Abraham, would you, would you sacrifice? And then there's the ramp. Or like Job, would you be obedient? And then there was many more children and many more riches. I mean, I don't know what that stuff looks like. But I'm telling you, if we just walk in obedience, God has a way of honoring that back, which that in which we honor him with. Come on, would you yell with me? I believe the Lord wants to give our family, our church, an authoritative voice, authoritative voice. But first, we need to learn how to walk humbly together in honorable obedience. What does honorable obedience look like to the Lord? What does it look like? What does that look like? What does your life truly living in obedience unto the Lord look like? What did I share last Sunday? I said it's scary to think about that. Because of the things that might change. Because of the people that might change. How many of you, because of the change in your life, have already seen a change of your circle of friends? It's crazy, right, how things happen. But your family, it happens. It's crazy. But when we live under that authority, things change. Our life changes. There's a, there's a passage that I want to end with. I almost want to talk to you a little bit about, um, about um, Naaman and dunking himself seven times. Maybe, maybe I'll share that next time we get together. Because the truth is, Naaman is a funny character. Because Naaman was a little upset. He was full of leprosy. And we'll read it maybe together in the weeks to come. But he's very bothered. Because he has leprosy and he's a high official. He's a man of power. Things get done for me. So he finds out about this prophet Elisha and he says, let's go visit him. And he screams out from the window yelling at him. And when Elisha sends a messenger to Naaman and says, tell him to go do this. Go tell him to <laughs> baptize himself seven times in the water. Naaman says, who does he think he is? I deserve, I'm Naaman. I deserve for him to walk down his stairs and come see me face to face. And him to touch me and, and him to speak a blessing over me. Who and he walks mad. He walks angry away from the prophet's house. And um, the revelation was given to Naaman's right-hand man. He comes up to him and says, oh, Naaman, I, I don't want you to, like, kill me. But have you considered this? You have nothing to lose. Like, just do what he says. Maybe if you do it, you, what do you have to lose? Maybe you get healed. Naaman goes, you know what? I'll do it for you. And he does it in the water and he comes out. He recognizes that his skin is made whole and he goes back to the, to the man's house and he tries to not pay him. 
receive my gold, receive my silver. And the, the guy's like, go home. Just honor the Lord. Be obedient. Go home. I don't want to receive any of your good. And, and we'll get into that. And, and he had to humble himself before the Lord. What, what does obedience and humbling our, ourselves under his obedience look like? So I started to think about this as I end and the worship team could start getting comfortable and we're going to close up because I, I, wanna, I, I wanted to give you some sort of introduction to, to grow this from here, um, to live under obedience and um, what it looks like to be submissive under such an authority. That I started to think, and we, we mentioned this last Sunday about Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. Let me give you a quick, um, a quick little summary and then what I'll do is We'll read it verse by verse when we get together again. But in Joshua 2, Joshua is about to take over the land of Jericho. And he sends two spies. He says, go to Jericho. Now listen to me. These two spies go to Jericho and they have nowhere to stay. And they, they, meet, they meet a woman that lived in the walls of Jericho. And it's just fitting for her to live in the walls of Jericho because she's a harlot. And it's good that she lives there because that's a good place to live for a harlot for business. It's the travelings of ins and outs, and it's a great place to hide men. And um, it just seems fitting for Rahab to live on the city walls. So these two men from the Israelites, they stay with Rahab. When Rahab sees who they are, she's terrified. She says, I've heard of you guys. You are scary. I heard what God did in the, in, uh, through Egypt. And as you guys crossed the sea, I heard what you've done to your enemies and how you've conquered other lands. And she says this, our king and our land, they're terrified of you. And they're like, yes, that's what we want to hear. So word gets around, hey, Rahab the harlot has two men in her house. And they're from our enemies, the Israelites. These are, these are Canaanites. And the king asks for harlot and says, where are the men? She says, I know they left that night. And, and they escaped. Really, they were hiding in her roof. They made a deal. They said, okay, we're going to go back. And she said, what about me? What about my family? And they said, I want you to grab a red piece of cloth and I want you to hang it out the window that we just escaped from. And if we see that red cloth, everything's going to work out and everything's going to be fine. But if we don't see that red cloth, I want you to understand this, Rahab, everyone's going to die, all of your family. Make sure that everyone is in your house when we come to raid this land. Make sure your father and his family and everyone's in here. And if they are, you will be spared and you will live with the Israelites for the rest of your life and we will keep you well. So Rahab says, okay, deal. They leave. We find ourselves in Joshua chapter 6. And we're gonna, this is where we're going to close. In Joshua 6, you have this mighty city of Jericho. You have great walls. You have a, a lower wall and then a higher wall and then the city behind it. A, a very interesting constructed city. And God tells Joshua, I want you to grab all the leaders of Israel. Grab the priest." Grab the ark of the Lord. Grab everything. Grab all the, all the horns, all the trumpets. And I'm going to give you the authority to tell them when to scream, when to shout, and when not to shout. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to grab your nation. I want you to grab your leaders. Listen to this, how crazy this sounds. For six days, I want you to take one lap around Jericho. For six days. And at the end of each day, you tell them when to shout, when to blow the trumpet, and then everyone go back to their tent. Do you understand me? He said, yeah. Can you imagine being Jericho, having your watchmen on the walls, and as you're looking down, you're seeing just a multitude of people just circling your town. They're circling your town. And the king is just saying, just wait, let's see what they do. They're weird. And they pause, and they're screaming, and they're blowing their trumpets, and then they all leave. That was day one. And you're like, man, that's hard. What do we do with that? I, I love that. I love that God has a way of, of just doing things because he has a way of even confusing the enemy on our behalf, you know. And day two comes and he does it again. They blow the trumpet. They go and they're like, man, this, these guys are weird. They, I'm thinking by day five, they're already calling other family members. Hey, you guys got to see this. <laughs> They've lost their mind. Day five comes, they're all laughing at them, throwing rocks at them, laughing. Day six comes, hi, this is a joke. But the seventh day, God said this, on the seventh day, I want you to do it seven times. 
and on the seventh time, and we'll read that part of the scripture. You tell them to shout, you tell them to blow the trumpet, and we'll see what happens. The walls are going to come down. I'm thinking that, well, they were there the seventh time. Watch this, they're going to they're gonna take another lap. But when they came around one time, they saw them going to Salem. This is different. They went for lap number two. They went for lap number three. You know, Naaman had to dunk himself seven times. You know, they had to take seven laps. It's just interesting. And on the seventh lap, let, let's go ahead and just read this because sometimes you just got to let the text just tell it to you better. It says that in verse 15, but it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And on the day only they had marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priest blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord has given you this city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that were sent, and you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed. When you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it, but all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. And the people went up into the city, every man straight before him. And they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city. Man and woman and young and old and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go to the harlot's house. I love that they keep calling her a harlot, man. And from there bring out the woman and all that she has. Like, just like she said, if not, everyone else is dead. And the young men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and the father and her mother and the brothers and all that she had. And they brought all her relatives and they left them outside of the camp of Israel. And they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron. iron, And they put the treasury of the house of the Lord and then Joshua spared Rahab the harlot. Everyone say Rahab the harlot. He spared her father's household and all that she had and... So she dwells now in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua charged them at that time saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. He shall lay his foundations with his firstborn and with the youngest he shall set up his gates. And the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the country. I would have loved to have been there. Rahab the harlot is spared. Is spared. See, Joshua chapter 2, she needed to be obedient in order for Joshua chapter 6 to occur. Joshua 6 occurred, and she was able to live through it. In Joshua chapter 6, that was a weird command by the Lord to walk. How many of you would show up today if the Lord says, we're going to march around Hialeah one time tomorrow? (laughs) We're going to march Tuesday, another lap. If the Lord really said that, Wednesday, another lap. And then on Sunday, we're going to do it seven times. I'm guessing like tomorrow we'll get a good, we'll get a good attendance because it's the first day. It's like when we fast and we do the week of prayer, the first day is always a good day. Everyone comes, but when they get really hungry, they're like, I can't go anymore because I ate. So like, how do I tell them on Thursday? Like, I'm <laughs> but how many of you will come the second day and the third day? Like, like naming, like you dip yourself the fourth time and you still recognize like I'm still a leper. But how many of you would go for the sixth and the seventh? And then the seventh day comes, how many of you would say, come on, that's a long walk. You're gonna, we've just walked, I don't know how many miles in six days. Now you're going to tell us to walk seven laps in one day? Like how many of you will come in attendance and say, I'm going to honor the Lord in the obedience of my walk. If it's going to cause walls to come down. And it's going to give me the authority to shout and see those walls. I'm going to live in obedience. So they had to be obedient. They had to walk six days in the seventh day, walk seven times. And then they had to yell. And I could almost imagine Joshua saying, hey, would you priest yell with me? Hey, would you all yell with me on the seventh? And then you look at Rahab the harlot. She's saved. Because she hides the spies and she lives in Israel for the rest of her life. She's kept safe. But Rahab is funny because Rahab is called the harlot. I mean, that's using a good word. We can use very other offensive words. 
but we'll choose harlot today. But not only is she a harlot, she's a Canaanite, meaning she's an enemy of Israel. She's a harlot, and she's an enemy. And if you remember, the king of Jericho came to her and says, where are they? She said, they're not here, liar, liar. They're upstairs hiding under the bushes. So what is she? Come on, what is she? She is a harlot, she is an enemy, and she is a liar. It's amazing that God could use a harlot, an enemy, and a liar. Respecter of persons, come on. See, I don't care how bad of a whore they've been. But if they choose to live in obedience now, I will redeem the whoredom. The Pharisee like, why don't you dine with me? And he's like, I'm dining with the whores. Why? Because they live in obedience now. That's crazy thinking. But it's the heart of God. I'll redeem whoredom. But she's a liar. I'll redeem the liar. But she's an enemy. I make enemies children. I make enemies friends. This is, this is crazy thinking. This is, this is different than the world. This is, you know, that in the New Testament, they had trouble with this. Paul's going to visit us in Jerusalem. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Do not tell Paul to come here. They, the Christians had problems with Paul in the beginning. How do we know that he's not going to come over here and he's going to trick us and he's going to kill us all? Not the murderer. But God's like, I'll use the murderer. If he begins to walk in. You, do you understand that your past, that your past, it's, it's called the past for a reason. That your past, and some of you are presently living in it still today, that your past and even your present do not dictate what living in obedience can produce for you in your future. We need to understand that. But she's a whore. But she's a liar. But she's an enemy. I, 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 don't, I want to make sure you understand this. But she's a whore. But, but she's an enemy. But she's a liar. But she's a whore. But she's an enemy. But she's a liar. She's a whore. She's an enemy. She's a liar. She's a whore. She's an enemy. She's a liar. She's a whore. She's an enemy. And she's a liar. But in Matthew chapter 1, it says there's a book that is written. It's the genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Judah. And Judah fathered Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And Perez fathered Hezron. And Hezron fathered Ram. And Ram fathered Amindabed. And Amindabed fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz by the wife whose name was Rahab. Boaz and Rahab. And it doesn't end there. And Boaz fathered Ruth and by Obed by Ruth. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David the king. And David the king fathered Solomon, the wisest king after him. I'm talking about from the genealogy of the whore, of the liar, and of the enemy came a king named David, a king named Solomon, and the greatest king that ever should come, a king named Jesus. Jesus came from the whore, from the liar, and from the enemy. Jesus came from her. So before you say, she's a whore. She's an enemy. She's a liar. Jesus says, she's my great, great, great grandmother. Because of her obedience, because of her obedience, I'm walking today. Your past, your present, do not dictate the future if you begin to live in obedience today. He, maybe I should have started with this and then given the whole explanation just to get to this point. Because you see, we automatically think like, it can't, it won't, it shouldn't. But then you have marriages that you say, they're not equipped for ministry. Because do you know their story? But I will tell you that they will use the story of shame to now shame the story of the enemy. And say, yeah, things in our past were a mess. 
And yes, you could call us the adulterous, but my adultery today declares the glory of God for today and forevermore. I'm telling you, God uses the whore. God uses the liar and God uses the enemy. What does your future look like if you start to live submissive under his authority? What does it look like? I'm going to be very honest with you. What will it produce? <laughs> Rahab never saw Jesus. But Rahab one day saw Jesus. Can you imagine the day that Rahab died? She walks into glory. This stuff will flip your wig. And she sees Jesus. And Jesus says, hi, mom. What? I'm bowing down before you. You're God. He's like, right, but in, a, in some years from now, I'm coming from you. Just, just watch this from here. But I was a whore. But I was a liar. But I was an enemy. You're right. You were. You were those things. But today you're a child. Like, what, what does submitting under his authority look like? What does living in obedience look like? I guess I'll end with this. There's so much I want to say because I want to talk about legacy because I love legacy. But I'll talk about legacy when I come back. So we'll continue on Rahab. But let's do this for a moment. Luke chapter 18. Then it happened, as everyone say Jesus, when he was now coming near Jericho. Can't make this stuff up, you know? You really can't make this stuff up. Jesus is now entering. <laughs> He's coming near Jericho. He's like, I know this place. I found out my great-great-grandmother was from here. I can't wait to see the destruction of the walls that she used to use to do harlotry. And like, like my great <laughs> Jesus now is coming near Jericho. But something real cool happened here. As he's entering near Jericho, a certain blind man begins to shout from the road. And he's begging. And he's blind. He hears about Jesus. He says, I know who this Jesus is. I'm going to be obedient to what's happening right now. In verse 36, it says, hearing a multitude passing by, he asked, what's, what's going on? What's going on? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, he's passing by. And out of nowhere, verse 38 says, he begins to cry out. And he begins to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. David is his, Rahab's great-grandson. Jesus, grandson of Rahab, the harlot, have, have mercy on me. And those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. Shush, be quiet, quiet. But the more they told him to be quiet, the more he roared louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. Don't tell me to shut up. Son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up. I'm going to go louder. So Jesus, it was so loud that he had to stop. He stood, he stood still. Do you, oh, man, I just felt this. Thing. Do you know that Joshua's faith one day in his prayer before the Lord made the sun stand still? He did. Do you know that the blind beggar made the sun stand still? It says Jesus stood still, just like the sun stood still for Joshua, who was entering Jericho. Jesus is entering Jericho. The poor man's begging, and he causes the sun again to stand still. And, and, and he looks at him. The sun stands still. You know, the sun stands still was not just one time in the Old Testament. The sun stands still happened again in the New Testament, nearing Jericho again. And as the sun stands still, Jesus stands still. Jesus looks at him. And he says, bring him to me. And when he came near, he says, what do you want? What's up? What do you want? What do you want me to do? And he said, Lord, I want to just receive my sight. And Jesus says to him, okay. Thank you for your obedience. Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. This is where, it's, where it's, every word in Scripture is important. It wasn't because he asked for his sight. It's because his faith made him well. And immediately he received his sight, not because he asked for it, but because his faith, his faith made him well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him. Glorify, and look at, look at the evidence of his life. He began to glorify God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I shared with some men on Monday, may we be the, well, may people praise God in us. People are starting to praise God in this blind man who now sees. I love this because God has a way of doing things. He saves a woman from harlotry, a woman who was known as a liar, a woman who was an enemy, who later on in the years to come, whose very own offspring, whose very own child, will eventually walk back into the same city in which she committed such sinful acts, and he will start to walk in it, and now he'll walk in it to redeem it. 
He walks in what is known to this woman as the place of her harlotry. But because of her obedience in Joshua chapter 2, her very own offspring, known as the Messiah, God himself, walks into the land in which she once committed harlotry. And he eventually comes in to redeem it. And he begins with healing a blind man who is also yelling. There's a lot of yelling going on in Jericho. There's a lot of stuff going on in Jericho. And in obedience of recognizing whom he was as the Messiah, the man is made whole. And I start to think about that. And I start to just chew on this stuff. And I say it's crazy because you never know what a life of obedience might produce. It could produce, it could produce something like this story. Where your life is say, I have nothing else to lose. I mean, I'm nothing but a harlot, a liar, and an enemy anyways. I might as well just be obedient from now on. And then generations to come, out of you comes the Savior of the world. The one whom we say all authority was given to. That's powerful. That's powerful. Because next time we get together, we're going to say something like this. We're going to say something like, have you ever considered that the things that you do right now and the steps of obedience that you take now, they might not even be for your very eyes to see and watch and experience, your life to experience. But it might be for the sake of the great, great grandchildren that come way after you. It might come for the people that get impacted in your life today. It might be their offspring because of your walk of obedience. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like, I, I'm talking about like you, you never know what an act of obedience you might listen you might live frustrated for the rest of your life on earth but then when you get to heaven he gives you a glimpse and you say watch what your life of obedience produces in the years to come i'm talking about then your mourning turns into joy your weeping turns into dancing you start to recognize it was all worth it man this life of obedience you're going to recognize that your life of obedience is not necessarily just for you how many of you are forcing yourselves to live obedience because you want answered that which you want for yourself but maybe maybe your life of obedience has less to do with you and has everything to do with that which will come after you so maybe my obedience the decisions of it today will affect not even my children but will affect the children's 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 children. Maybe it will affect your coworker, and not just maybe not even your coworker. Maybe maybe it will affect your coworker's son, 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 son. And you would have thought that just that one time he says, "Look at this screen," and you said, "No, I have the fear of the Lord. I no longer partake in such filth." That struck a chord deep in their soul, and from there they had to rip themselves off from perversity. And from there the chain of perversity on that family left all because one man in the cubicle looked at the other man and said, "I will no longer partake of that." You never know what you might cause today. You might just say, man, if I don't sound this, sign this divorce paper, man, just that one act of obedience, who knows what it will produce in the years to come. If I do not flip there, if I don't turn there, if I don't go there, if I don't taste of that, if I don't indulge in that, who knows what that one act of obedience might do. And Jesus walks in and he's redeeming in the same land in which his one of his motherly ancestors was committing harlotry in. May my children walk in greater glories that wherever my feet tread upon, may they overpass that and establish their greater glories of God and take it to places that I can't even imagine. But let it start with a life of obedience today. Come on, how many of you if you could just stand with me and we close off in prayer here. Recognize that your past, recognize that your present doesn't dictate your future if you begin to live in a life of obedience, submissive under his authority. You could relate to this. Yeah, maybe you're not called a harlot, maybe you're not called a liar, maybe you're not called the enemy. But what are you called? But what do you say about yourself? What is the title that is given to you by others? What is the title that you've given yourselves. I'm, I want you to know that that, that title is not necessarily true. I don't, I, I, how many times have we said the Samaritan woman is not called that in heaven? How much the harlot um, Rahab is not called that in heaven? All these people, they're not called that in glory. And your title that you call yourself and you label yourself with here on earth, if you just begin to walk submissive under his authority, if you begin to live in that obedience, who knows what it might produce? Who knows what might come from it? Come on, would you yell with me? Would you yell with me? They had to yell at those walls. 
but it had to come by being faithful, walking all those laps. If they would have yelled without being obedient to walk, would the walls have come down? I doubt it. So that tells me that whatever you want to yell about today, there is no authority in it if you don't first find the honor in walking, walking those laps of obedience that he's called you to walk. Come on, how many of you know that you got to grab your bags and you have to start walking the laps of obedience? Start beginning to walk the laps of obedience. And as you walk those laps of obedience, come on, he'll begin to say to you, awesome. Now when I tell you to yell, yell, watch walls come down. Watch you begin to operate. Now you could honor authority because you've lived to honor obedience. If you struggle with that and you really do just need prayer and you say, I, I know this is a message that God is calling me to honor, to live a life of honor and obedience. I, I want to do this. Just, just don't even think about it. Just come up to the altar and say, pray with me today. Come in agreement with me today. Pray that the Lord would do this work in me, that I, that I would start being faithful to honor him in my obedience, that I would fall submissive under his authority. And that in there, I will be able to operate in that in which he's called me to operate. I see there's a constant struggle in my life. And maybe that that struggle is because I lack in submitting under his authority and living in this obedience. I need to walk in obedience. I want to yell with you. I want to yell together with others that are filled with faith and obedience. Come on, what does a life of obedience look like to you? And I'm telling you that if your past says, you're a whore and you're a liar and you're an enemy. It doesn't mean that that's what your future is. If you begin to fall under this grace, under this authority, he begins to rule and you begin to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And holiness begins to erupt and godliness begins to take flight. You begin to flourish in the image of God because he longs for your obedience. The altar's open. If you can pray for some of them and We'll open it up so that some people could just, maybe some brothers and sisters will come right along you and say, yes, Lord, my brother, just give him strength. Give him, give him the courage. Let him walk in obedience. Give my sister the courage. Let her walk in obedience and, and produce. Produce the fruit of, Ahab, of Rahab, of Naaman. That, Lord, maybe, maybe even right now that, that they wouldn't be so stuck on seeing it today. But that these decisions of their lives today would, would be an impact for the years to come. Maybe moments that they will never get to walk in and see, but they'll understand it and see the weight of it in glory. Let them know that they're not of this world, Lord. They're of another world and not in this world to walk in obedience and that it will testify in the world to come, in the kingdom to come. Come on, strengthen this group. Right there where you are, maybe you could just start glorifying the Lord. Maybe you can lift up your hands and start stretching out your hands and praying for this group that came up here. Lord, stir up obedience in them. Lord, stir that up, Lord. Let them, let them, Lord, learn to operate in authority because they learn how to, how to come under your authority, Lord. Lord, let them learn that there is authority in their words and in their yell because, Lord, there, there is a walk of obedience that they've honored. So, so start to pray that in faith for them. Come on, begin to yell for their behalf and, and begin to make noise for them and ask the, the Spirit of the Lord just to move over them. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You're so good, Lord.